Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, we have reached episode four in our series about the great political fictions, and we've arrived at the 1860s and in Russia. I'm going to be talking about Turgenev's novel, Fathers and Sons, which is about the conflict between the generations then, and I think, now. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read brilliant essays on many, many different subjects, including the Russian literature of the 19th century. To subscribe, just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at a special rate by going to lrb.me slash ppf. A lot of the great political fictions are Russian novels of the 19th century, and there are a lot to choose from for a series like this. There is War and Peace, which is about everything, and that means it's also about politics, epic, sweeping, panoptic. I don't know how I would do it in 50 minutes. There are the great novels by Dostoevsky, which are deeply political, and there are even a lot of them. Notes from Underground, Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, perhaps the greatest of them all, his masterpiece, which is the novel that in English is sometimes translated as The Demons sometimes as The Devils, and sometimes as The Possessed, which is probably the best because it's the scariest. It's a very scary book. It's about a group of young men who effectively take over a town, infiltrate it. Some of them are terrorists, some of them are nihilists, some of them seem to be mad, and they send the town mad. And it ends in violence and various kinds of despair. It's often thought to be profoundly prophetic, in the sense that it anticipated the coming violence and madness of Russian politics in the 20th century, before, during, after the revolution. I haven't chosen those ones. I've chosen a different book, Turgenev, Fathers and Sons, which was published in 1862, 10 years before The Possessed. It's different in almost every way from those others. It's not grand, sweeping and epic. It's quite short. It's a lot shorter than War and Peace. It's quite domestic in that it's almost a comedy of manners. It's about a small group of people and their interactions on a set of domestic settings in this house, in that drawing room, on that coach journey. It's very much micro and not macro. It's not violent. And The Possessed is deliberately its opposite in the sense that Dostoevsky quite liked Fathers and Sons when it came out, or he was quite kind about it. But 10 years later, he'd had enough of it. He'd had enough of Turgenev. He'd had enough of the kind of fiction that Turgenev represented. And in The Possessed, there is a character called Karmazinov, who is a thinly veiled parody. Parody is probably too polite. It's an absolute attack on Turgenev. The kind of man he was, the kind of writer he was, 
Karmazinov in The Possessed is a dilettante. He's a fop. He's a fool. He's a panderer. He panders to the young. He doesn't really understand what he's doing. He's a storyteller who doesn't understand his own stories. That is Dostoevsky on Turgenev. So Fathers and Sons is not The Possessed. And at the same time, it's a novel that is closely connected to those other epics of Russian fiction and Russian literature in the 19th century, partly because these people all knew each other. They were sometimes friends, sometimes enemies. They were always falling out. In 1861, I think, Turgenev and Tolstoy nearly fought a duel over someone's insult about someone's daughter. It was that kind of world. It was a very, very small world, even though they were moving over vast distances inside Russia, but also outside Russia, because this was an age where Russian writers often found themselves in exile. But even in exile, they would regather in London or in Paris or in Berlin and resume their friendships, their fights, their duels, their fallings out. It's a tiny world, but these books all have a connected theme, even War and Peace. They are about the clash between the generations, which is the subject of Fathers and Sons. It's in some ways the definitive not just Russian novel, but novel about intergenerational misunderstanding and some of the political consequences of that. It is not as political a book as some of those others, but it has deep political resonance. And all of these books, including The Possessed, including War and Peace, are partly about misunderstandings between the generations. War and Peace could have been called Fathers and Sons. I'm by no means an expert on this, but the title of Turgenev's novel in Russians more literally translates as fathers and children. It's not just about the sons, it's about some daughters too, though it's very much focused on the sons. It's also not just about the fathers. The mothers play a role as well, but the father-son relationships are its key, as they are in many ways in War and Peace. War and Peace is about Andre and his terrible, in his way, terrifying father, and Andre's struggle to break free from his father, to live up to his father. It's about Pierre and the father that he never really knew, the father whose life he surprisingly inherits, and whose world he inherits, whose possessions he inherits. And he has to work out what to do with them. It's about Nikolai Rostov and his lovable but tragic father, and presiding over all of War and Peace is Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, who had a complicated relationship with his father in the sense that his father died when he was young, leaving the Bonaparte family effectively penniless because Napoleon's father had gambled it all away, literally gambled it, and then on crazy, quixotic business ventures. Napoleon's father lost it all, and Napoleon spent much of his life trying to impress his mother by getting it all back, and in the end, he conquered the world. War and Peace is Fathers and Sons. The Possessed, the Demons, the Devils, is about the generations and the misunderstanding between the generations, though misunderstanding, which is the key of Turgenev's book, doesn't do justice to what Dostoevsky's talking about, because it's not just that the generations, the older generation, the men in their 40s and 50s, and the younger generation, the men in their 20s, don't understand each other. They are in that book liable to kill each other. Fathers and Sons, Turgenev's book, is situated in that grand sweep of Russian fictional reflections about what has gone wrong between the generations. But it's also, in a narrower sense, 
right at the heart of a two, three-year story that embodies the intergenerational conflict in Russia and beyond Russia from 1860, 1861, 1862, 1863. Each year has in it something, either a piece of writing or an event, which is what Fathers and Sons ends up being about. In 1860, a friend of Turgenev, Alexander Herzen, who was in exile in London, and had been and at various points remained a leader of a certain kind of Russian writer, intelligentsia, Herzen, who was the great liberal, who'd become more of a socialist. He was in exile. There was a group of people around him. He was a good friend of Turgenev. And he was also embittered, disappointed, disillusioned, as so many Russians were in this period, particularly the Russians who had come of age in what they hoped was going to be the great liberal flowering. These were the men who were disappointed above all by the revolution of 1848, the great European revolution that promised a new age of freedom, seemed to herald a kind of emancipation of the mind and an emancipation of politics. And it all collapsed into disappointment everywhere, effectively, but above all for the Russians in Russia. Herzen in 1860, disappointed, angry, frustrated, including with his personal circumstances, wrote an essay called The Superfluous and the Jaundiced, which is about the men of his generation, the superfluous, and the men of the next generation who are the jaundiced. The superfluous men, like him, by implication like Turgenev, maybe not Dostoevsky, though he's still part of that generation, the superfluous men are the ones whose time has been and gone, and everyone knows it. They had a go, and it didn't work. They tried, and they failed. They had hopes and dreams, ideals, when they were young, and they came effectively to nothing. And so they are now, though still alive, shuffled off the stage. They are superfluous. No one can quite see the point of them. They carry on doing what they do, writing their little essays, composing their nice novels, fighting about the literary feuds that have kept them going and kept them alive. But their time is done. In the same essay, Herzen says, the next generation, who you might expect would be the ones with renewed energy and renewed hopes, the people who are going to build a better world, like his generation had thought they would build a better world when they were younger. But no, Herzen says, the new generation are the jaundiced. They're disillusioned in a different way. They're partly disillusioned because they're so consumed with contempt and hatred for their fathers, for their father's generation, that they can barely think straight. There's no one, Herzen says, that the jaundiced hate more than the superfluous, which is odd because if they're superfluous, you don't really need to worry about them. But also the jaundiced generation are scarred by the disappointments of their father's generation, and they haven't quite got the energy to do more than complain. In fact, Herzen says of the younger people, they spend half their time repenting because they're full of self-loathing and half their time chastising. They're either beating up on themselves or they're beating up on someone else, but they're not doing anything. They're also fighting their petty battles, their literary feuds. They're replicating the older generation without even having got old. And Herzen says in this essay, there is another generation coming. So he can see, he thinks, beyond the young men to the next wave of young men who are, he says, not from Moscow, not from St. Petersburg. They're likely to be from the provinces. They might be from Ukraine, he says. 
They're angrier, but they're also much more determined. They are not the jaundiced. They are the ones, the word he uses for them is they are the muscular ones who are actually going to come along and sweep all this away. It's as though he's saying Russia, Russian intelligentsia was trapped in 1860 in this dance between the superfluous and the jaundiced, each deeply pissed off with the other. There's a wave of something new coming, which is going to make both of them irrelevant. In 1861, the great event happened that Herzen's generation had been longing for all their lives. It was the symbol of the kind of freedom that they had been championing, the emancipation of the serfs in Russia. That was their great cause. It had been a lifetime in coming. It was the symbol, for them at least, of the Europeanization of Russia, which is one of the things they wanted, trying to live up to Western European liberal values, because the problem with Russia from that perspective is it was so medieval. It was a slave society, a serf society in that sense. It was backward and theocratic and autocratic. And the emancipation of the serfs was the symbol of the great leap forward. But like almost all long-anticipated, long-heralded, dreamt-of political events, when it finally happened, it was a disappointment to everybody. Nobody was satisfied. It was a horrible compromise, if compromise is a polite enough word, for something that left many serfs as badly off as they were before, trapped in a new set of completely exploitative economic relationships. It compensated not the serfs for having been serfs, but their owners for having lost their property. It did nothing really to liberalize Russia more generally. Censorship was still in place. There was a little thaw, but not much more than a thaw. It remained, for almost everyone, still a deeply repressive society. It remained a theocratic society. The radicals thought it didn't go far enough. The conservatives were horrified that it went too far. And the liberals were caught in the middle, being shouted at by both sides, and still themselves, the Herzens, frustrated with this seismic event that somehow came out as a non-event. In 1862, Turgenev publishes Fathers and Sons, which is set in this period. It is about the era of the emancipation of the serfs. It's about the era of this intergenerational conflict. Its characters, if it was going to be given another title, could be called the superfluous and the jaundiced. The fathers and their generation are portrayed by Turgenev as somehow on the edge of things. But my God, the younger generation are angry, but it's not clear to what purpose. And it is the domesticated version of this. So it is not grand, it's not sweeping, it's not political. It doesn't try and take on the emancipation of the serfs or anything else as a great political issue. It tries to talk about the personal relationships that are shaped by living in these times. And then in 1863, so this is year, 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 another book was published. This was by Nikolai Chernyshevsky, and it was called What is to be Done. And it was a reaction to Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. Chernyshevsky was a radical, a nihilist, maybe a proto-terrorist. He was certainly seen as such by the Russian state. He was in jail. He wrote his book when he was in jail as a threat to public order. And he had been infuriated by Turgenev's gentle, delicate little novel. And he wrote in reaction to it, a book which came to embody the thing that Herzen had been hinting just three years earlier, which was there was a generation coming who weren't going to put up with any of this, 
who are going to sweep away not just the superfluous, but the jaundiced. What is to be done is a truly radical book. It's a bit mad. It is variously described as revolutionary or utopian. It's about young people not in delicate domestic situations trying to deal with their frustration and their anger. It's about young people breaking away completely, trying to form new societies, new kinds of relationships, including free love relationships, throwing away all the trappings of the past, all of the trappings of the society in which they found themselves, trying to reinvent the human condition. What is to be done points the way to the possessed, because the possessed, more than anything, is a reaction to what is to be done. It's Dostoevsky trying to suggest this is where that madness leads. What is to be done also points the way to the Russian Revolution, because it was the title that Lenin borrowed two generations later for his book that started Bolshevism. 1860, 1861, 1862, 1863. Tegeniev's book, Fathers and Sons, is right in the middle of this. It is both in the spirit of Herzen's The Superfluous and The Jaundiced. It is, in its way, cynical, but also gentle. And it points the way to a future which is going to be radically different from that. Cynical, yes, but not at all gentle. The future of political violence and terrorism and revolution, and a complete overthrow of the established order. So Tegenius' book is is right in the middle of that. It's not a particularly forward-looking book. It's a recognizable type of novel that isn't very Russian, and it was very popular outside Russia, because it's, it's kind of Russia as seen through the eyes of a Western European novelist. Though Tegenius was deeply Russian, there's a, a Western European sensibility to it. And it brings to mind not just the books that it's going to produce in furious counter-reaction, but much earlier pieces of writing. When I was reading it, I was nagged all the way along by the thought it just reminded me of something, and I couldn't think what it was. There was some book that I felt was structured a bit similarly or had a similar arc to it, and then about two-thirds of the way through it came to me. The book it reminded me of was Pride and Prejudice, which is not a great Russian political novel. And the reason it reminded me of Pride and Prejudice is that it has a similar setup. So Pride and Prejudice could be called Fathers and Daughters, or One Father and His Daughters. But it begins with the story of two young men, one slightly frightening, seemingly austere, reserved, to some people extremely rude, and his friend, who is clearly nicer, gentler, a little bit under the spell of or the thumb of his more domineering companion. And it's the story of these two men going to a place and finding themselves among fathers and daughters. And that's more or less the setup of Fathers and Sons too. So in Pride and Prejudice, it's Darcy, the slightly scarier one, and Bingley, the nicer one. In Fathers and Sons, it's Bazarov, the central character, who is angry and rude and is frightening to the older generation, but also pretty frightening to the women that he meets. He's, he's not nice. And then his much nicer friend called Arkady Kirsanov, who's clearly under his thumb or has fallen under his spell and will do most things that Bazarov tells him to do, but not everything, crucially. And these two young men are traveling together. They're clearly friends. And Kirsanov spends quite a lot of time either saying to people, oh, don't worry about Bazarov. He's not as bad as he seems. Or saying to Bazarov, can't you just be a bit nicer? Bazarov is Darcy. 
Kirsanov is Bingley. The difference, though, is that Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, underneath it all, is a thoroughly decent chap. And he has principles. In fact, he's deeply principled, it turned out. And by the end, weirdly, lovable. Bazarov isn't. So he's not lovable, particularly on the surface, and he's not lovable underneath. He really is angry. He really is rude. And he is also unprincipled. In fact, he is unprincipled on principle because he has embraced a philosophy which has a name which is shared with the philosophy that was embraced by Chernyshevsky, the philosophy that is being parodied in The Possessed. The name for it is nihilism. It was very fashionable at the time. So Turgenev's novel is partly a novel about this young person's philosophy, nihilism, and what it means. It's in some ways a parody of it, but it's also actually pretty sympathetic to it, not to the philosophy itself, but to the thought that if you are in that generation, if you are in your 20s, it would be deeply appealing. What makes Dostoevsky so angry about fathers and sons is he thinks that Turgenev ultimately is pandering to nihilism, trying to understand it, being quite polite about it. What makes Chernyshevsky so furious about fathers and sons is that he thinks that Turgenev is mocking nihilism and giving a typically sort of aloof older person's take on what he sees as a younger person's fashion, whereas for Chernyshevsky, nihilism is the truth. Turgenev alienated pretty much everyone with this book. Nihilism is at its heart, and Bazarov, I don't think anyone would call Mr. Darcy a nihilist, really does believe it. And the book is set up as the journeys of a young nihilist in rural Russia across a couple of estates, going through the ferment of the emancipation of the serfs, but it barely registers. It registers a bit, but it barely registers. But going across a series of families and a series of relationships and how his nihilism navigates that and what reaction it produces, particularly among the generation of the father of his friend. So the first estate they visit is Kirsanov's estate, where Kirsanov's widowed father lives, who's portrayed as an old man. And as with all these books, when you read what counted as old then, it makes you feel really old if you're my age, because he's an old man, he's in his early 40s. And his brother, a man called Pavel, similar generation. Bazarov is a particular kind of nihilist. So that word came to mean all sorts of different things. You could be a revolutionary nihilist. You could be a nihilist, and this is the implication of Dostoevsky, who falls very easily into violent terrorism. You can be a communist nihilist. You can be an anarchist nihilist. But Zaroff is none of those things. He lays out his philosophy to anyone who wants to hear it. His nihilism is a rejection of established values and established conventions. That includes moral values, political values, social values. In the name not of some political ideal, but of science. He's a chemical nihilist. He says at one point, one chemist is worth 20 poets. He says at another point, I'm going off to dissect a beetle because that's my poetry. He believes in materialism. That is, that everything can be explained through the material forces that underlie human experience. So, what we think of as our emotions, our romantic attachments, what we call love, these things are just 
chemistry in the brain. They're just our synapses snapping. That's who we are. We're no different from anything else in the material universe. We are just a material construct. And so all of these things that we built to overlay that, to deny that truth to ourselves so that we can believe we're something nobler, we're something more truthful to ourselves, that we are something more moral, it's all rubbish. And the society in which he lived, Russia, the 1860s, was built on a series of lies about who we really are, religious lies, moral lies. And it's the job of the nihilist just to sweep all the bullshit away and to tell the truth, the truth being none of that stuff is true. The truth comes from science, it comes from a material understanding of the world, and it has to yet be fully constructed. Bazarov doesn't think that scientists have understood everything, but he thinks the potential for understanding anything requires giving up on moral, literary, religious values and sticking to the science. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. That's his philosophy, and it's a liberating philosophy because it frees him up to do what he likes, so he doesn't have to abide by conventional values. He doesn't have to be polite. What's the point of being polite? Politeness is just another of these artificial constructs concealing from us that we are just chemical reactions in the brain. He can tell people what he thinks. He can tell them he doesn't believe in the things that they believe in. And at the same time, it's sort of mortifying for him. So what makes Bazarov a deeply sympathetic character is that he's an embarrassed nihilist. One of the words that Tegeniev used to describe him in this novel is that he finds himself easily embarrassed, which is not what you would associate with Lenin or all of those people who come before him, including Chernyshevsky. The embarrassed nihilist is partly embarrassed by the fact, as happens to Bazarov in this novel, that though he knows it's just chemistry in the brain, he can't help falling in love. He knows it's just a chemical reaction. And yet, because he's human and he's constructed in the same way that we're constructed, it happens to him. And he tries to rise above it. He tries to show bravado when he falls in love and to downplay it. When he meets the woman that he's going to fall in love with, he says to his friend in a typical piece of bravado, God, she's good looking. Look at that body. I'd like to get her in the anatomical theater, he says, as though it's a question of anatomy. But actually, before long, he's moonstruck. The chemistry works in him too. And he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what to do with these feelings. He can understand them so he can devalue them and he can convey that he knows that they're worthless. And then he's even more trapped. And in this book, he eventually declares his love for the woman he falls in love with. And the woman he falls in love with is a pretty tough cookie herself. 
And she doesn't want what he's offering because she knows what he's offering is just reluctantly drawn out of him. He's never going to commit to it. So he feels the feelings, but he downplays their significance because the other part of his brain is telling him all along, these are just feelings, and I know feelings are worthless. So it's miserable for him. He declares his love, which is embarrassing. He's rejected because the woman he loves says, I don't want what you're offering, which is embarrassed nihilistic love. I'll either have the real thing or nothing at all. Thank you very much. He's the miserable nihilist as well. And that's part of what drives his anger and part of what makes him such a sympathetic character. Part of his misery comes out in finding people that he can be what he thinks of as the real deal with. That is, he can really speak his nihilist mind to. And the person he alights on, and this produces some of the set piece confrontations in the book, is Pavel, the uncle of his friend. So Arkady Kirsanov, his father, on whose estate they visit, is leading a curious life as a widow who has taken on a servant girl and has hidden her away, but has had a child by her that he's deeply embarrassed about. And Arkady says to his father, because Arkady is a free thinker under Bazarov's influence, don't be embarrassed, Dad, that you've had a child with this woman. It's lovely. You know, everything goes now. It's an excruciating exchange. Everyone is embarrassed by it. Arkady's father has a brother called Pavel, who is described by Turgenev as a kind of dandy or a fop. He's absolutely the superfluous man. He's trying to live the life of an English gentleman on this out-of-the-way Russian estate. He dresses up like he's in St. Petersburg, but better dressed than that. He, he admires the English. He loves English culture and English manners. He's in love with the Germans, German philosophy. He's described as someone who loves nothing more than to read Goethe and Schiller and Hegel. He's clearly a man out of time and out of place. He is ridiculous. He's dressing up in a town where no one could care less what he's wearing, and they think he's ridiculous. He's reading these books with no one to talk to. And he's still a believer in those ideals, those Western, European, liberal ideas of a previous generation, which happens to be his generation, that are now superfluous. And certainly, in the eyes of Bazarov, he is utterly ridiculous. And they have a couple of absolute screaming rows. Each of them really speaks his mind. The nihilist and the disillusioned but still on his high horse liberal just lay into each other. And the arguments that they have are very specific to early 1860s Russia. So they're arguing about books that they've read and people that they either admire or don't admire and German philosophy is very much of its time. And yet these arguments are completely universal and almost anyone will recognize something in them. They just are the classic rouse that an older generation, which feels like it's being shuffled off the stage, will have with a younger generation that the older generation feels are lazy and rude and are angry for no reason. So Pavel says to Bazarov, I've heard all your stuff before. And Bazarov says to Pavel, I've heard all your stuff before. Do you think I'm not sick to the back teeth of listening to men in their 40s and their 50s tell me about the ideals of their youth and tell me that they used to be radical once and tell me that they believe in things? I don't want to hear it anymore. And Pavel says, right, you might say you don't want to hear it, but you can't just be against everything. You can't just say to me, I make you sick. You have to tell me what you stand for. So if you want my generation to get off the stage and you want to replace us with your lot, you can't just burn things down. He says, you don't just destroy the building. You have to construct something new. 
And Bazarov says, no, I don't. I'm totally within my rights to burn everything down and not construct something new. My job is to reject things. I'm a nihilist. You are all trapped in your false ideals and your false memory of your false lives. You're living in the past. Everything about you is a memory of a past that never really existed that you've romanticized. My job is just to sweep all that away. I'm against all of it. And Pavel says, well, you can't be against everything. And Bazarov says, yes, I can. And it's like the scene in Marlon Brando's film, The Wild Ones, where Marlon Brando is playing the quintessential rebel. And he belongs to something called the Rebel Motorcycle Club. And they arrive in a town and they're at a dance. And a girl at this dance asks Marlon Brando, what are you rebelling against? And Marlon Brando says, what you got? And Bazarov says, what you got? Give it to me. I'll be against it. And Pavel says, my God, you know, you think you're so clever and you think you're so original. You've no idea. I've heard all that before, too. (laughs) I've heard it all before. And Bazarov says, you're boring me. And the arguments end, as most of his arguments end, with him yawning and just saying, I'm bored of this. And he just walks out. It's a classic intergenerational conflict. In this case, in the novel, there's another version of the conflict, which is the one bit of violence that enters the novel. They fight a duel. Pavel and Bazarov, but not over materialism or liberalism or Hegel, but over a kiss. It's deliberately ridiculous, presented as ridiculous. Pavel sees Bazarov, he thinks, kissing his brother's mistress. There's misunderstanding, there's confusion, there are challenges, and they end up fighting each other. No one dies. Pavel is injured. Everyone is sort of embarrassed. I mean, a duel is an embarrassing thing. And the duel between the nihilist and the liberal is utterly ridiculous. It resolves nothing, except they understand each other a bit better after it because they share a kind of mutual embarrassment. Bazarov will tell people what he thinks of them. But Pavel, Tegenev conveys, has got a point. Bazarov doesn't really know where it's heading. He doesn't really know what to do with this anger. He is quite jaundiced in this book, as well as being genuinely, furiously angry. The first part of the book they spend at Arkady's father's estate, and then they move on. They move through the town, they fall in love, they get disappointed. They wind up at the smaller dwelling of Bazarov's parents. Another difference between Bazarov and Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy is seriously rich. Bazarov is, is not rich. He's not well off. He's, he comes from a relatively poor family. And he's working his way up in the world. He has to fight for what he has. And he's annoyed with his friend who he thinks is privileged. And he thinks that his friend, if he needs to, can just fall back on the, the comforts of the estate that he's going to inherit. Bazarov knows he has to work for a living. And in the end, the work he's going to do is the work that fits his materialist philosophy. He's going to be a doctor. And He's a doctor nihilist, and it fits, but it also fits with the fact that he's kind of trapped. He's always being pulled in two different directions because being a doctor really suits him and his personality because it's a a very material thing. It's a very practical thing. What he likes doing is dissecting animals and one suspects people. He likes looking inside the physical form. 
to see what makes it tick. But he also genuinely does seem to believe that if you can sweep away all the bullshit, it should be possible to do more good in the world. And being a doctor is one way of doing that kind of good, a sort of practical good. It's a no bullshit profession, he thinks, at this time, where almost all the other professions, including, God forbid, being a writer, are the bullshit professions. So it is a way of him being true to himself. And at the same time, it's clearly not, not least because it's his father's profession. So he'll be doing what his father did, which is quite a conventional thing to do for a nihilist, following in your father's footsteps. And his father and his mother are lovingly portrayed by Tegenev in this book, slightly mocked, but also gently cosseted. And they are also a completely familiar type, type of parents. They adore their nihilist son. They kind of worship him. They spoil him. He treats them abominably. He will disappear for two years and never show up and never tell them where he is. He's not the kind of person to write a postcard once a week to reassure his mother that he's okay. He is, after all, a nihilist. He shows up out of the blue, and far from reprimanding him, they welcome him with open arms. They are so delighted to see him. They don't feel they really deserve ever to see him because they know that he's really angry with them. And he is angry with them. And yet, he stays. There are some funny and touching scenes. There is one moment where Bazarov, the nihilist mother, wants to cook him for dinner food that he'll like because she wants her boy to be happy. And she suspects that he's not happy. And of course, she's right. He's not happy. And she says to her husband, what should I cook him for dinner? And her husband says, well, you could ask him. Ask, why do you ask him what he wants for dinner? And she says, I can't possibly ask him what he wants for dinner because he will tell me that's a really boring question. I'll bore him if I ask him what he wants for dinner, but I really want to make him the food that he likes. I'm just going to have to guess. And she's not wrong. He will tell her to stop boring him. He's got a beetle to dissect. And yet, in the end, that's where he winds up. He winds up with them. And this book that passes through some set-piece philosophical arguments between a materialist and a liberal, a superfluous liberal, that passes through scenes which take place on estates where the serfs are being emancipated, that moves not across a great sweep of space, but there are long journeys that are undertaken by this pair from one home to another. But it gets more and more domesticated and more and more constrained. And it ends with two weddings. So it is like Pride and Prejudice. But it's not the weddings of Darcy and Mr. Bingley. It's the wedding of Mr. Bingley, Kirsanoff in this case, who marries the girl he falls in love with. And Bazarov sends him off to get married with absolute fury. He says, just go and do it. It's what you're good for. It's all you're good for. You're not one of my kind. You're too rich. You're too spoiled. You're too cosseted. You're not serious enough. You're no nihilist he says, you're basically who you always were going to be. You're your father's son. You want a nice wife. You want to live on the estate. You want to have a comfortable life. Go and do it. Have some children. Breed. Try and produce the next generation. Produce the people who are going to sweep us away. Just piss off, he says to his friend, in fury, but also in a kind of love. The other wedding is not Bazarov's wedding, because he's not the marrying kind. It's Kirsanov's father, who with the support and encouragement of his son, ends up marrying his servant girl, mistress. It's two weddings and a funeral, because the person who dies at the end of this book is the nihilist. Bazarov dies. And he dies in circumstances that seem to completely fit his predicament. He dies 
doing work as a doctor because there is an outbreak of, I think it's typhus, in the area that his father lives in. And he goes to an attendant autopsy because he loves cutting up dead bodies. He wants to see what's in the inside. He wants to understand this disease. And in the course of the autopsy, he gets a cut and he gets infected. And he knows he's going to die. He comes back and he says to his parents, his loving parents, in a tone of relatively cool indifference, I think I'm going to die. And I think I'm going to die soon. And I think it's going to be really ugly. And he's young. He's not as young as his friend. He's a bit older than Kirsanov, but he's still young. He's one of those young men who complains about feeling old. And he dies young. And it breaks his parents' heart, completely breaks their hearts. And his death is reminiscent of another scene in classic scene in Russian literature of the 19th century. This is Tolstoy. This is not War and Peace. This is later than that. This is Tolstoy's short novella from the 1880s called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And that is a, a short novel about the death of a superfluous man. So Ivan Ilyich is a man about town, a man of self-importance, an official, a man who felt he really mattered. He gets sick, older. I think he's in his 50s in the book. And he knows he's going to die. He's on his deathbed, although he convinces himself maybe he won't die, but he is going to die. And in the course of facing up to his mortality, he also has to face up to his complete superfluity. He, none of the stuff that he believed in really mattered. It was all just empty. The performance, the show, the man about townness, what does it count when you're dying? It counts for nothing. And that's a book about the superfluous and the jaundice because his children, Ivan Ilyich's children, come to see him on his deathbed and they make clear they don't care. They don't care that he's dying. They find him annoying and frustrating. And he can hear them in the next room complaining about the fact that their father is dying and it's interrupting their social life. Isn't it a bore that dad is dying just when we were going to go to this party? Well, let's go to the party anyway. He's never going to know about it. He hears them saying from the next room. In that novel, the superfluous man hears the jaundiced younger people in the next room making clear just how little they care. Tolstoy then gives him a kind of epiphany at the end, which rescues him from this despair, because it is a pretty despairing realization that your death for your children is a social irritation. In Fathers and Sons, it is the jaundiced younger man who dies. And it is the superfluous ones, the parents who are grieving in the next room. And they don't sit in the next room complaining about the death of their son. They sit in the next room and he can hear them wailing their hearts out. They are destroyed by it. When the superfluous man dies, the jaundiced don't care. When the jaundiced man dies, the superfluous ones are broken by it. And it is heartrending. And presumably, its heartrendingness is precisely what annoyed both Dostoevsky, who thought it was sentimental, and Chernyshevsky, who thought, that's what not nihilism is about. <laughs> nihilism is a political philosophy and it's a moral injunction and it's going to change the world because we don't believe in anything except all the things we do believe in. Tegenius' novel ends with parents mourning their child. It's a novel of its time completely. A lot of the references, I had to look them up in the footnotes. What's this book? What's this thing that they're talking about? These little controversies in Russian literary life in the 18, early 1860s are at the heart of this book. 
in that way, it's more of its time than Dostoevsky and Tolstoy with their grand sweep. And yet, it really speaks across not just the decades, but the centuries, the near two centuries since it was written. And when I read it, it just feels so now and so familiar. It seems to capture something about intergenerational conflict now, the superfluous and the jaundiced, the way in which there are two generations that do divide politics in many societies, including many Western societies. Russia might be different, but this is the Western European version. Tegenev's is the Western European version of these deeply Russian ideas like nihilism. We live in the 2020s in political environments, in Western established democracies, where the generations are furious with each other. The older generation are furious with the young. They complain about them all the time. They complain about Gen Z all the time because they think they're jaundiced and they think that they are against everything. But what are you for? That argument between Bazarov and Pavel, I mean, that argument could play out in so many different settings and in so many different ways that would be totally familiar. And one of those settings is 2024 Britain. You can't be against everything. You have to be for something. Why do I have to be for something? You're the generation that had the chance to do something and you did nothing. So you can't blame my generation for the fact that it's your failure. Yes, but if your generation thinks we've failed, you have to have something to put in our place or else all you're doing is surfing off the back of us. Yes, but what do you expect us to do when you're the ones who created the conditions in which there are no choices for us? And on and on it goes. It's completely familiar. And it's partly familiar because this is the domestic version. It's almost the comedy of manners version, and it's comic, some of this, the way this goes around and around and around. It doesn't usually end in a duel, but were it to end in a duel, it would be more like a Tegenev duel than a Dostoevsky duel. It's also familiar in some other ways, too. There's some quirks to fathers and sons. So one obvious difference between 1860s Russia and 2020s Britain or anywhere else is that in the intergenerational conflict, ours are old societies. That is, there are a lot of old people. So being in your early mid-40s, which in Tegenev's world made you an old man, it's a, that's a young man now. That doesn't place you with the older generation. The older generation are people in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And there are an awful lot of them in the way that there wouldn't have been in the world of Tegenev or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. Those were young people's worlds and primarily young men's worlds, because men had opportunities that women didn't. And yet in Fathers and Sons, one of the things that's weird about it and makes it slightly hauntingly unreal is that it's the story of these two young men, but almost all of their encounters are with older people. Not entirely, they, they, they fall in love with young women and so on. But it's very much focused on these two young men and the father and the other father and the mother and the uncle and the governor of the town and these various establishment figures or authority figures that Bazarov insults or is disdainful towards or weirdly becomes quite fond of. It's an implausible world in which there aren't many young people and there are lots of older people, which would not have been true of the society that Tegenev was writing about, but it is true of a society like the one I'm in, 21st century Britain, which gives it an odd kind of resonance. Another thing that's slightly unusual about the connection between then and now is Tegenev is describing a world where one of the things that the generations are able to argue about is the fact that they are reading the same stuff. 
because this was a highly censored society, Russia, in the 1860s. There wasn't much out there. It was repressive. And there was a kind of understanding that you fought your political battles through a few literary magazines. You had to do it under the radar to get away with it. But it meant there was an incredible intensity about things like literary interpretation or literary criticism. These were proxies for political battles. And everyone needed to read the same things to be part of the argument. So you could have these furious disputes between the generations about an article that had appeared in a literary journal that everyone read because there wasn't anything else to read. So again, in some ways, we're living in the opposite world. It's not like there's nothing else to read. And it's not like in the age of the internet, there's a great deal of censorship. You can read anything, anywhere, anytime, about anything written by anyone. There is an overwhelming abundance of things to read, things to refer to, things to discuss. And yet, in the 21st century, one of the functions of the way that the information economy works is that, unlike when I was younger, the generations do seem to be at least watching the same things. So it's like TV has replaced Russian literary journals as the thing that we can all argue about, we can have our furious proxy political disputes about Game of Thrones or Bridgerton or Only Connect, I don't know, whatever it is, because the different generations are actually watching the same things. When I was young, I don't think I watched anything or listened to anything that my parents watched. But now I'm aware that as a man in his mid to late 50s, I'm listening to not quite the same music as younger people, but watching some of the same TV shows, watching the same films. And we argue about these things in the way that Tegeniev describes Bazarov and the older generation arguing. It's a proxy for something else. It's quite fun. It's frustrating. It's often emotional, sentimental arguments. It's not particularly politically reasoned. But it's furious, and sometimes both sides end up absolutely livid with each other. That's all recognizable. And yet there's a question that one is left with at the end of Fathers and Sons about now, which is, is this just the thing that comes before the possessed? So 10 years after Fathers and Sons comes the possessed. One year after Fathers and Sons comes what is to be done. Two generations after Fathers and Sons comes the Russian Revolution. This looks like the end of something in the 1860s, the end of a certain kind of sympathetic, slightly cynical, highly literary account of the domestic version of what could be but aren't in this setting violent political emotions. Within a decade, within a year, they have become violent politics. It is possible to imagine that we are passing through that phase too. When I think about the politics of climate change, at the moment, the politics of climate change still feels a bit more like fathers and sons than it does like the possessed. It is more interfamily arguments over the Christmas table. It is more everyone furious with everyone else. You did it. No, you did it. Well, if it's our fault, why aren't you doing something to rectify it? How can we rectify it when it's your fault? It's your generation. It's your generation. And yet it's not hard to imagine in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, that it's something completely different, more radical, more violent, much closer to terrorist politics than domesticated pseudo-literary politics. Who knows? But it is at least possible that fathers and sons is what comes before the possessed when you're living through an era of political frustration, which is what Tegeniev is describing and is what we are living through 
now. I think of John Lanchester's great book, The Wall, about a dystopian future, a post-climate breakdown future in which the wall has to be guarded by primarily young men. It's an entirely violent, militarized world to keep out the boat people. And at one point, the protagonist goes home and meets his parents. And the gulf between the generations is completely insuperable. There's not a you did it, you did it, you did it exchange. There's a you did it, and the parents say, yes, we did. And it's clear that all the ties have been broken. Or I think of the philosopher John Gray's recent book called The New Leviathans, which is about what comes after liberalism. And he uses Russian history to illustrate the illusions of liberalism. We believe we can contain this in a domestic setting, in a civilized setting. We can make it a philosophical argument. It does not have to be violent. And he says, you need to read Russian history and understand Russian history of the later 19th and 20th centuries to know that actually the default of these things is unspeakable violence. And that the illusions of liberalism, that somehow we've put that to bed, are as much illusions now as they were in the 1860s or the 1870s or the 1880s. And we need to know what comes next. And if we know what comes next, we will recognize even in our, what will look with hindsight, quaint intergenerational struggles, there were the seeds of the future violence. If climate change is what it seems to be, this kind of politics, it's your fault, no, it's your fault, will not last long. And it will be replaced by something much more radical and much more material, and I would guess much more violent. I don't know when, I don't know how, but it's hard to think that this version of it, this slightly frozen version of it, which really is the contest between the superfluous and the jaundiced, will last. So I don't know when or how, but there does seem to be a sense when you read Fathers and Sons and what makes it poignant as well as funny is that it is describing, though it's about a young man who represents the future and Bazarov represents the future in this book, it's describing a vanishing world, a world that essentially has no future and actually for someone who represents the future, Bazarov has no future. It's at the end of something the early 1860s in Russia were the end of something. They weren't the beginning of something. The emancipation of the serfs was not the beginning of something. It was the end of something. Maybe what it was was the end of illusions. The 1860s don't last. The 2020s don't last. We are going to pause our series on the great political fictions here, and I'm going to pick it up again in the summer with a lot more episodes. But next week, in this slot, we're starting a new series, which is going out every week, on the ideas behind American presidential elections. I'm going to be talking to the historian Gary Gerstel about eight American presidential elections and why they matter, what connects them, and what they can tell us about politics in 2024. Before that, we have one extra episode in this series going out on Sunday. I'll be doing a Q&A answering some of the many questions we've had about these episodes so far, particularly about Gulliver's Travels, which has provoked a big response. Do join us for that. To find out more about this podcast, future series, just follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.